Aloha. This is Catherine Cruz. Thanks for joining us here on The Conversation, Hawaii Talks. It's Thursday, October 19th. Today we hear more from Governor Josh Green about support for displaced Maui families and get his thoughts about the growing tensions in the Middle East. Imagine midnight in Paris. Okay, maybe not midnight, but how about an evening of French classical music in Manoa? We'll hear about an upcoming performance featuring a celebrated soprano. And going bananas over bananas. A festival celebrating the tropical fruit kicks off this weekend. We get the details and talk to a North Shore farmer who's been studying the banana since he was 14. Tune to the conversation here on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. 6,800 people displaced by the Maui wildfires are in hotel rooms, down from more than 800,000. Governor Josh Green took part in a news conference yesterday with Maui Mayor Richard Bisson and the head of the American Red Cross. We talked to Green this morning. Here he is discussing a program to provide some $50 million in aid to families for everything from buying cars to paying rent. With the fire in Maui, which is devastating, and today is the you know, the 72nd day since since the fire. We had first a huge number of people that were displaced, 12,000 people of which 9,000 needed help. Uh, so we put 9,000 people into to hotel rooms or uh, long-term rentals, short, short-term turned long-term rentals right away. And that was incredible to see the team do that. They did it within two weeks. I'm told that no one's ever done anything like that before, which we're grateful for. And now we're working with Mayor Bisson and FEMA and HUD to gradually move people into much better, longer-term settings where they have a kitchen and a yard or more space for their keiki. That's going to take some time. The mayor has some aspirational goals uh, to get a lot of this done by the end of the year, and it's great. Uh, They're going to be the point people on this housing move, but we'll be supporting them all the way, making sure that we can get large contracts with hotels uh, extended, that we can get much more robust contracts with people like Airbnb and, and other renters and people that are property owners. So all this is critical because this is the transition period now. The first six months, you kind of just triage and survive. Then you look at the next year where people can settle in, be stable, and we ask ourselves the larger questions. Where will we build permanent housing? Where will the population be? Can they all find jobs in Maui or do people have to start looking at other parts of the island and and what will that mean? So I think we have to commend the people on the ground, Red Cross and the county workers and like my human services team, they were amazing. All these people, Jimmy Tokioka, but it's a long process. It's not going to just end suddenly. And so we now have people housed. Now we're also cleaning up the properties. We have to assess the toxic considerations of what the, the ash is and start recovering. That's the ER doctor approach, but it also is gonna be a long process because we have to get resources to people, and a lot of that's gonna be financially impactful. We know along the way, you know, since you've been in office, that you have had emergency situations that you've come across that you've just gone to aid because, you know, you're a doc. And I bet you just never imagined, you know, having this magnitude of an emergency on your hands. Yeah, I think that's correct. I, you know, I, I remember the day after uh, the fires when we went into Lahaina, there were three guys sitting on the side of a, a burnt out fast food place and they were singed. These are three homeless gentlemen and I checked their lungs. Their lungs were pretty coarse and the doctor part of me was kicking in maybe even more in some ways than the long-term governor requirement for me. And after about a you know, three or four days, you could see the full breadth of this crisis. But in the first few days, it was one person by one person. And that's why we were so grateful to some hotels just opening up, even though they didn't have contract, people giving over their houses that were outside of the the disaster area. Uh, It was amazing what the people of Maui did. But yeah, I, I pivot back every once in a while to feeling like a physician. And to tell you the truth, it's a lot easier to be an emergency room physician than a governor. 
as we get into this next phase where we try and bring stability for these families, I mean, this is really the hard part then, right? I mean, you've got to figure out how do you make it work? You know, how do you match up people who need housing with the people who have housing to offer? And how do we do that fast? How do we get those tiny homes up or the mobile homes or the yurts or, or the temporary housing? Because there's so many steps yeah, there, there's a couple big things that are happening. One is a very good idea came from um, from Mayor Bisson, and I really like this plan. So he's got a plan where uh, local families can directly accommodate uh, individuals that have been displaced. And this kind of local housing program that he's got will mean that he'll give $375 per person to someone who you know puts up several individuals, like a family of three would get in that case, uh, just under $1,100 a month. And it stays in the economy. It's, it's very positive. And frankly, I think that's just a great idea and will lead to people building ADUs, you know, the al- alternative dwelling units right on their property. It's a good long-term solution. So that's one thing that's really great. Meanwhile, my team will fully launch tomorrow, the 20th, the the TANF program, which is temporary assistance for needy families. I've already moved $50 million over to Maui County. People will be applying and that money for, for families that were displaced will probably mean as much as $30,000 per person, or I should say per family unit to be more specific, if they've got kids. Mm-hmm. And that money means they can buy a car or pay first and last or pay for education. And that will, that will be a perfect combination with what's going to go on on the ground for housing, because there's there's a shortage of housing, a real serious shortage, and so some people will want to build these ADUs on, say, their their brother or sister's property, which, by the way, the county council approved last year, so it's it's kosher. Others will uh, be able to get into a really long term rental and get more stability. You know, there's just a lot of tough moments, and so some people will move from one hotel to another that's a little bit more available, but. That's what happens in a crisis. And, you know, I know I, I feel heartsick that there's ever any stressor on people that continues. But if we're just being honest, you know, we lost 3,526 structures and we displaced over 12,000 people. So it will take a lot of creative solutions. But I'll make sure we have enough money and resource to go into the community. And then on the ground, they'll figure out family by family what the best you know, circumstance is. And the families that were affected uh, by the fires, you know, the kids are just going back to school this week, and so that's that's positive. I know there's still concern about the the air quality and 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 the ash, but you have kids, you you know, you know, you worry about their safety first. Yes, I would send my kids back. I have to say that was the criteria that we had in discussions this weekend. You know, when we found out there were heavy metals in the soil up in Kula, when they found out that there was more arsenic in the soil that's okay in Kula, we made sure we double-checked all the soil samples that we had had around the schools, and they were negative, and the air quality was all green. And then, in truth, the, the school classrooms actually have HEPA filters and other kind of, you know, ways to prevent uh, exposures than most houses do. Like, houses that are near uh, the burn zone they have to be careful. They have to check the soot and ash, and, and we're going to be thoughtful about that too. But in the classrooms, I actually think it's safer. So this is a part of returning people to normal. I think they even have uh, the homecoming football game this weekend, and I guarantee you that is going to be more therapeutic than anything somebody in an acute, um, like a urgent care center can provide. Going to a football game, going back to school, helping with a little bit of resource. Those are the the big therapeutic moments and people getting back into their lives. This is why I was so, I don't, I didn't want to be paternalistic about this. I just felt that opening very slowly, very gradually to, you know, the hospitality industry was important because they have to get back to normal in some way, businesses and people. We just saw the latest numbers for the unemployment uh, uh, from the unemployment office and yeah, 8,000 people, out of work on Maui. Yes, and that's, you know, that's 20 plus million dollars a month. And that's okay because I don't want to rush anyone back. It's been very traumatizing, of course, it's both physically and psychologically. However, there's no way that could be sustained. It's unlike uh, the COVID crisis when we knew there were going to be national programs for, you know, six months and a year and then more. 
we are we are just one community that is reaching out to the federal government and so that's impactful now i am you know i'm fortunate i've developed a relationship with the president and uh the, and the first lady and many of the cabinet members so i'm flying there and jamie and i will have dinner with uh with president biden and jill and others uh, i think wednesday and we'll talk about these things and i will see many of the cabinet folks and make sure that they're prepared to help you know give us housing monies and give us infrastructure monies next you know not just next month but next year and going forward so there's just a lot right now and people have been very supportive in general there were a couple there were a couple hot moments i won't you know i won't kid you where a lot of there's a lot of uh, angst and and animosity in the air but that's also from my perspective what happens when people are really you know they're really wrestling and they've been hurt and my job is to try to heal so that's what i'm going to do and i will do it both in dc and here and i will support the mayor all the way so that these many thousands of families have a chance to get back to their lives and it will happen that was part of a conversation we had with governor josh green earlier today we'll uh, pick back up with the conversation after this short break Support for HPR comes from Hawaii Opera Theater. Set in World War II, An American Dream tells of a Japanese-American taken from her home. October 20th at Leeward Community College Theater. Tickets at hawaiiopera.org. Each week, New Dimensions explores the social, political, scientific, environmental, and spiritual frontiers with some of today's foremost social innovators, thinkers, scientists, and creative artists. I'm Willis Barnstone, translator of the Restored New Testament. Next time on New Dimensions, I'll be talking about my love for poetry and sacred texts. Beginning Sunday morning at 11. Back to our conversation with Governor Josh Green, who we talked to in just in the last hour. He is Hawaii's second Jewish governor. The first was Governor Linda Lingle. We asked Green about the situation in Gaza as he heads off to the nation's capital to meet with President Biden, who is returning to the U.S. after a brief visit to Israel. You are going to talk to uh, President Biden. He's uh, on his way back from Israel. Anything you want to say about that situation? Well, first of all, war is tragic. What happened, um, what Hamas did was unacceptable, tragic, and a a monstrous uh, moment. Unacceptable in every way, and they have to stop doing this and have to be held to account completely. And I have relatives in Israel. I know what they are feeling. Um, At the same time, the faster we can get to resolution and avoid hurting any civilians, the better. And so I will, of course, just as any person would share with the president that I hope that uh, the conflict ends quickly. Uh, I'm going to support the, the end of Hamas because it's got to stop. That's the same for any terrorist group. It has to stop. And then we'll move forward. I can't speak to the specifics about the hospital explosion i just simply don't have any information but i always try to err on the side of uh, preaching peace and let me say this as a, as a person who's jewish you know i one of my mentors was a guy named jerry rabinowitz who was a a physician mentor of mine when i was training and he was he was murdered at the tree of life synagogue in in pittsburgh pennsylvania about five years ago and so i've personally seen some of these incidents and you know that that wounded the community deeply because this was a guy who went back into the synagogue to save two, two of his patients that had um, intellectual disabilities, and 
you know, this kind of thing still is going on. It's got to stop. There should never be any hate crimes against people of certain faiths. Humanity's got to be better. And that's what I'll express to the president. Well, you know, in this morning's paper, there's just this really touching picture from the Associated Press of a young boy who was just overcome with emotion as he's sitting in rubble. It doesn't matter where you fall on Israel and Palestine, but just the suffering that you're seeing on both sides, it's just, it, it's heartbreaking. Yeah, every child has the same um, kind of blood coursing through their veins. And to tell you the truth, the war in the Ukraine is horrific also. And for my part, we need to encourage national leaders uh, to find peaceful ways to deal with these political conflicts. And that, you know, if I can be one of the many voices to support President Biden in that way, I will be. I would speak the same way to any of the leadership, whether it's President Netanyahu or, or even President Putin. I mean, I would encourage them to decrease the violence and move away from that because it, it's really devastating to humanity to continue to watch these things. And it, it holds us back. I've said many times that we should be spending these billions of dollars on um, health care and, and future, you know, future ways for humanity to survive and, and grow food and, and create housing. You know, housing is very important to me. Meanwhile, we're destroying housing in each of these beautiful places. So it's exactly the opposite of what we should be doing. And, I'm lucky to get to share that with um, people of the stature of the president and Speaker of the House and whoever will listen. And you mentioned you still have relatives there in Israel. I mean, are they all okay? They are. The ones that I've had live in Haifa. And a lot of them moved to the United States over the years, but some of them always have one or two children that stay back and raise their families. And they live in many ways an embattled life. And I'm sure that the Palestinian community feels the same way. Uh, there's utterly no reason for us to continue to to have animosity between uh, the Palestinian people and the Israeli people. And there's no one should no one should be offering shelter uh, to these terrible people that have hurt others, um, like Hamas did. So I do have these relatives. I, I have a connection to the Jewish community, and though my you know, my job, first and foremost, is to try to protect the health and safety of the people of Hawaii. I'm alerted to the fact that we have conflicts in other places, too. Some of them are in the Pacific, and we have to, you know, right now we're just disagreeing, and I would, you know, it would just be terrible to ever see that escalate to a conflict. So the world is small now, and we all have to be accountable for humanity. So we should speak up and demand that there are peaceful peaceful resolutions as quickly as possible. This week, you know, started the defueling of Red Hill. You know, we just want nothing but success for the a joint uh, task Red Hill uh, group. Yes. And, you know, we want success for your housing working group because, yes. boy, the need is great. And we want to be able to get a high-performance team to get those units up quickly. Yes. Yeah, we do. Uh, I do have good news to report. Um, as of yesterday, I got a report that the draining of Red Hill was going extremely well and efficiently without a, a glitch. And I'm just kind of quietly um, celebrating their good work. And then on housing, you know, next month we'll have another one of those big meetings. And I'm going to try to get us going on a few projects that are just obvious, you know, especially things that are focused on uh, like transient-oriented development, rail-related, or, or state projects that really no one opposed that we can just do because we need so much housing for local people. Uh, so we, for you know, for two months, we spent, I don't know, most of our time trying to make sure we provided for the people of Lahaina. Uh, but already today, I signed off on a major project for Wahiwa, which will be helpful for kids who need a library and uh, this, you know, earlier this morning, we are expanding our loan forgiveness program for, for doctors and nurses across the state. So there's things going on all over the place that should help, you know, help Hawaii a lot. Uh, but obviously, our hearts are mostly still with Lahaina right now. All right. Well, uh, Governor, thank you so much for your time and, and safe travels uh, as you head over to meet the president next week. 
You bet. Hey, thank you for having me. That was Governor Josh Green talking to us this morning about the situation in Gaza and Israel. This is The Conversation on statewide member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Coming up, your backyard quiz. Onihoa, olehua, onihau, okaua, oahu, omolokai, olanai, omau, okaholabe, ohavai. For today's Backyard Quiz, we take you back to the 1980s when mullets and big hair were the rage, sported by fashionistas with extreme shoulder pads, lace, and lycra. We're thinking of a local beauty who appeared on the small screen with roles on Hawaii Five-O, Magnum P.I., and Dallas. Our mystery actress was also an accomplished athlete and competitor. She was the 1978 Hawaii Girls Singles Tennis Champion, as well as Miss Hawaii National Teenager and Miss Hawaii USA. She pinged the national radar by placing fourth in the Miss USA pageant in 1981, and then a year later, appearing on Johnny Carson's Tonight Show. In the 90s, she pioneered the role of Kirsten Forrester Dominguez on the CBS soap opera, The Bold and the Beautiful. She would go on to carve out a pop career in Europe, uh, release a couple of albums, and earn a huge fan base in Finland and Italy. For today's Backyard Quiz, can you name this super achiever? Call 808-941-3689 or 877-877. 9413689 if you know the answer. The first one to get it right scores an HPR reusable tote bag. Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Nairit Hawaii, which supports nonprofits providing homeless families with access to affordable housing, such as women in need on Kauai. NairitHawaii.com. Today on The Daily, my colleagues traveled to Eagle Pass to find out why the people who once welcomed the plan to use local law enforcement to stop the flow of migrants across the U.S.-Mexico border are now turning against it. I'm Michael Barbaro. That's today on The Daily from The New York Times. Beginning this afternoon at 1.30. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Mobi, a Hawaii wireless company since 2005, featuring a locally-based customer care team committed to problem-solving and personal service for each client. Learn more at Mobi.com. Eyebrows are being raised over two nonprofits run by the same person. Our reality check today features a story about that. Honolulu Civil Beat reporter Stuart Yurton joins us today. Good morning, Stuart. Good morning, Catherine. Yeah, so tell us about this. Yes, well, um, coming up later this week, we have a big festival here uh, starting on the Big Island and moving to Hawaii, to Oahu. It's the Hawaii. Uh, food and Wine Festival. It's run by a nonprofit called the Hawaii Ag and Culinary Alliance, and its uh, chief executive, uh, Denise Yamaguchi, um, also has a full-time job with a totally different um, organization called the Hawaii Agricultural Foundation, and which runs a um, agricultural park in Kunia, and it raised the question, can a person uh, really serve as the CEO 
of two nonprofits, uh, full-time jobs, um, without running afoul of uh, nonprofit laws and, and policies. Well, I had to chuckle because I know your article says you tried to reach out to her, but she was too busy. Well, <laughs> yes, no, that's exactly right. Um, and we did reach out, and the person said she is too busy. And um, it is understandable. I mean, the, this Food and Wine Festival is coming up. Uh, again, our question is, can she be putting together this festival, which seems like it would take a lot of time um, to be doing, um, and also run, uh, having a whole other full-time job? Well, so what are the, you know, what are the, the rules say? I mean, how, how does that, yeah. you know, is it legal, not legal? Right. That's a really good question. So, you know, people have said, well, maybe there's overlap between these two entities. And you've got agriculture and a lot of the food and wine festival is about using local agriculture and, and making really good food with it and showing that off is their overlap. And According to Hugh Jones, a former um, attorney general with the Charities Division for the state, you know, if you have one job and it's full time and the other one isn't full time, then it's a problem because essentially you're paying someone for a full time position when they're not working full time. And again, a private uh, for profit uh, organization might be able to do that without problems, but in the nonprofit world, um, that's not okay. Well, so I imagine, though, it, this is a question you need to pose to the board members, right? Like, are they all right with this? Well, yes, and the board members could face um, uh, consequences and liability if there's a problem. Um, one thing we do know is uh, the board members uh, pay her very well. I mean, she is, Ms. Yamaguchi is one of the highest paid nonprofit executives in the state. Um, she's, for example, um, she gets three hundred over three hundred thousand uh, dollars annually for these two jobs. Um, her organization, though, is relatively small, uh, with three million in revenues. Uh, by contrast, the CEO of Catholic Charities uh, during the year we looked at got about the same amount, slightly less than uh, Ms. Yamaguchi, but their revenue was over a hundred million dollars. So one person getting 300000 for uh, running a group with $3 million in revenues, or about 10% of the revenues going to the CEO, the other 300000 for $100 million in revenues. So that's kind of what we're, part of what we're looking at here. So then how does this get, like, not really resolved, but I mean, you know, does the Attorney General's office have to weigh in on this? Yeah, the Attorney General's office regulates um, charities here so these are considered public charities so the, the they could get involved or the IRS also uh, deals with these also you know they do get money from the state government um, again about 700,000 during this last session for both um, and then over the past several years the organizations have gotten a more leading up to last year more than 1.2 million in uh, taxpayer money to support them, including a lot of that going to compensation for executives. Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, I'll be curious to find out if any of the lawmakers had raised this question, you know, about her sitting on two different boards full-time. Well, we haven't seen that yet. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, I guess as the budget hearings get underway in a few months, we might. <laughs> we might see it. We'll see, we'll see what happens. I mean, she is um, connected with Donovan Dela Cruz, the Senate Ways and Means Chairman, uh, they have uh, a partnership uh, that they're doing with the Wahiwa Value Added Ag Center, which is one of the Senator's uh, pet projects. They've also featured him as one of what they call localicious heroes um, for a tea park that he runs in Cunia. Yeah, it will be interesting to see uh, how this plays out. But thank you so much, Stuart. Thank you, Catherine. Uh, that was reporter Stuart Yurton with today's reality check. Uh, you can read the full story at civilbeat.org.
was a golden era that produced impressionists like Monet and Cezanne. Well, you can lose yourself in the music of that time in the golden salons of La Belle Epoque. Uh, that is the focus of the latest concert featured later this month by Alliance Francaise Hawaii, featuring a night of French music by female composers. We talked to Blair Boone Migura about the mission of the uh, French Alliance to spotlight fine French culture in the islands by bringing in special guests from abroad. A lot of people aren't aware that we have about 3,000 French residents here on island. And in addition to that, we have their families, their extended, their children. <laughs> so you have Franco-Americans, Franco-Hawaiians running around. And, um, and then there's just simply a lot of people here very interested in culture, French culture. We just had the French Fashion, Food, and Wine Festival event at Bloomingdale's. We partnered with Bloomingdale's, Modern Luxury Magazine, and other sponsors and partners to help present fashion and French food and wine at its best, and uh, we were very proud. It was a successful event. <laughs> yeah, it, it was terrific. And you've got another event in the in the hopper in the queue. Yeah, yeah. We try to do something at least every, uh, you know, we do little things every month, but we try to do a big event at least three or four times a year. And so in July, we have our Bastille Day, uh, which is usually at the Halekulani, or it's been at other great, well-known venues here in Hawaii. But what we have coming up next, uh, actually at the end of the month, October 29th at 3 p.m., we're going to do a French concert. So it's French music. We've done French fashion, food, and wine. Now we're turning to French music. And that'll be in Orvis Hall at the University of Hawaii, 3 p.m on a Sunday. Um, and uh, we have general tickets and VIP tickets still available. And for the VIP ticket holders, we actually have a after event as well, a post-concert reception where we have a little surprise in store, so can't really divulge what's going to happen. Yes, it's a tease, but I, I but I guarantee um, it'll be delightful for all who can attend. Um, and the post-concert event actually happens uh, at a private luxury residence in Aina Haina. So we, we give everyone about 20 to 30 minutes to get from the concert to the post-reception event for those who will be joining us there. Okay. But yeah, the, the concert itself is going to be amazing. We're bringing in two European artist, a French singer, Laetitia Grimaldi. Um, she is. Uh, she made her Carnegie Hall debut in New York uh, back in 2013, and she went to Manhattan School of Music and Juilliard Conservatory, the great conserv- music conservatories here, and or two of them here in the United States. And um, and she's just been kind of a, a, a rising star ever since she uh, made her debut at Carnegie in 2013. She's won a lot of vocal competitions. She's been performing internationally. And she's a very interesting person. I, I know her personally and just her pedigree. She's French, but she speaks French fluently, English fluently, Portuguese fluently because she grew up in Lisbon, Spanish and Italian, all with equal fluency. I hate people like that. <laughs> Actually, I love her, but but I as a as a speaker of two languages, I'm envious of anyone who speaks that many languages with such ease and fluency. And so yeah, uh, she'll be joined by her pianist Amiel Bushakovitz, and he's also equally fascinating. Uh, uh, he's Israeli born. I believe he grew up in uh, Germany, but he has an Amer- uh, sorry an American father. So he's another one who's just a polyglot, you know, speaking several languages without accent, you know. And in addition to that, they're just both hugely talented musicians. Their classical gifts as a pianist and singer are, are quite impressive. So we're just very happy to welcome them, host them here at Hawaii uh, by the Alliance Francaise and, and joined in partnership with the University of Hawaii and TV5 Monde Plus, which is a French television platform. And so what we're going to be doing is for all attendees, we're going to extend to them access to French programming. That's television shows, news, uh, movies, documentaries, all that you'll have through their platform for free for six months just by joining us uh, at the concert. And so the theme of this is the Belle Epoque? Yeah, La Belle Epoque. Well, uh, so Laetitia, and uh, she just came out with a CD recently, and it's called Ombre, and Ombre in French is shadow. And so she's focused her CD on women, female composers who've lived in the shadows of their male counterparts. So that's what they're going to be um, doing is presenting music from La Belle Epoque era of female composers who you may not know their names just because, you know, at that time, um, it was just mostly a, a man's game as far as musical composition. Now, they are going to pepper the concert with male composer compositions as well. So it's not an all-female program, Mm -hmm. but unlike many programs that we see where we don't see any women composers on the program, or if you do, maybe one, this is going to be more evenly distributed. So we'll have 
you know, probably 50% male and 50% female composers. And then that time period, I mean, I'm thinking, you know, Art Deco, you know, that whole rage at the time. You, you know, know your... It was a golden era, right? Absolutely. You know your history. <laughs> I'm impressed. It is. It's actually a, a time period that I'm actually equally fascinated in. So La Belle Époque is generally from considered um, from about the time of the Franco-Prussian War of 1870 all the way up to 1915. So it's just a period from 1870 to 1915 where in France, I mean, the arts were truly flourishing. Um, music, painting, sculpture, architecture. I mean, we got the uh, the Eiffel, um, La Torre Eiffel, the Eiffel Tower in 1899. So it's just, you know, there's so much going on, L- literature, poetry. Uh, so yes, th- this is going to be quite a special time of, of history to be reflected on stage. As you put on these events, you know, what have you seen over the years? Uh, I guess you get new faces coming in, you know, people coming and going. Very true, very true. Uh, I know you joined us last year for yes. Mark Markham. Yes, um, an oh, that was a wonderful concert. <laughs> yes, thank you. He's truly extraordinary. He was uh, the great legendary soprano Jesse Norman's pianist for 20 years. Um, and that in and of itself is a special because Jesse usually didn't stay with pianists that long. She had many extraordinary periods pianist with whom she worked. So Mark Markham staying for 20 years was a true credit to his talent um, and to their relationship. Um, And then additionally, we have presented a smaller musical programs in partnership with uh, University of Hawaii using their extraordinary faculty, of which I am also (laughs) um, an adjunct member. But but uh, but yes, we were, were just ve- so very fortunate to be able to kind of tap into the local talent here in Hawaii for these French productions because uh, the talent here is extraordinary as well, as you well know. Even the Honolulu Museum oftentimes gets in a lot of the art from this period. In fact, I just was there this summer and I was remarking on just what wonderful displays of French art was, was there as well. I was taking a young visitor here who was very interested in the arts to the museum and so it was my first time there in a, in, in a few months. And and I kind of was struck how I had not realized how much French art was there. So there is a lot of French activity and cultural stuff going on, even separate from the Alliance Française. Yeah, and, and of course, uh, I think 2024 is supposed to be the Olympics in Paris. In Paris. So, yes. you know, lots of interest in France right now. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. And people, you know, I'm always reminded by our uh, honorary consul, Guillaume Maman, here in, in uh, Hawaii, that um, France is still one of the fastest growing languages. And I kind of, you know, I forget that at times just because I'm so uh, well invested and deep into it. I just assume, you know, it is, but he confirms, yes, it is still one of the fastest growing languages. And so if you're always looking for a language for your child to take, I mean, you cannot go wrong with French. I mean, obviously I'm biased and there are other wonderful languages too, but you really can't go wrong having them um, study and learn French. Okay, well, I will enroll in your French 101. Yes. (laughs) Beginning lessons. Absolutely. We (laughs) offer classes too. We offer classes in addition to these cultural activities. So... Is there anything uh, people need to know about the concert? Well, uh, the tickets are on sale now on our website. And if you, uh, it's a very easy website, AF, standing for Alliance Francaise, so AF Hawaii. Dot org. So and if you can't remember that, then just Google <laughs> Alliance Francaise or French Alliance of Hawaii, and you'll find our events page. So yes, the tickets are on sale. They'll be on sale right up through to the event. Um, we don't really sell them at the door. So I do encourage everyone to get their tickets, you know, leading up to the event. But at the door, uh, just for the sake of getting everyone in and getting the concert started, we try to limit actual on-site um, selling of tickets. Right, right. You don't need a flurry right at the Yeah, center. yeah. That always seems to happen. There was always one or two. And we, we try to accommodate as best we can. But last year with Mark Markham, we were almost sold out, so it was impossible. Okay. Yeah. All right. Well, Paulus, thank you so much. Oh, Merci. Thank you. Merci. Merci infiniment. Merci, Catherine. And that was Blair Boone Migura of Alliance Française, Hawaii, talking about an upcoming musical concert. And if uh, Blair's voice sounded familiar to you, he used to co-host the Singing in Other Sins classical music program on HPR2. (laughs) 
Support for HPR comes from Hawaii Pacific University, committed to helping meet the need for leaders in a changing world, offering working professionals in-person and online degree programs. Learn more at hpu.edu. Now it's time to reveal the crowning answer to the backyard quiz. Earlier in the show, we told you about an outstanding athletic beauty who lettered in 11 varsity sports at Punahou and was a two-time All-State Women's Tennis Champion. She represented the state over four decades ago as Miss Hawaii USA 1981 and placed fourth in the national pageant. Recognized for her print, commercial, and television work, our mystery actress appeared in numerous television roles on Hawaii Five O, Magnum P.I., Hill Street Blues, and Dallas. She also pursued music in the 1990s, and her album entitled Be Young, Be Foolish, Be Happy went gold on the European charts. However, fans of Terry Ann Lynn, she is the answer to today's Backyard Quiz, may be best remembered for her pioneering the role of Kristen Forrester Dominguez on the CBS soap opera, The Bold and the Beautiful. And did you know that this Buff and Blue alum was a schoolmate of Barack Obama's? Both graduated in 1979. And congrats to Mindy from Hilo. You got it right. That's today's quiz. If you have one to share, write to talk back at hawaiipublicradio.org. If you know North Shore farmer Gabe Sactor Smith, you know he's bananas for bananas. Sactor Smith started studying the fruit when he was 14 years old. After high school, he attended the University of Hawaii, where he earned his master's degree in tropical agriculture. Today, he's the owner of Hawaii Banana Source, an organic farm on the North Shore here on Oahu. Uh, he'll also be the featured speaker at this weekend's Banana Festival in Waimea Valley. The Conversations Russell Subiano sat down with Sactor Smith in our studios to talk about this tropical fruit. I love bananas. I eat bananas all the time. Anything banana flavored, I love. Whatever it is, I, I love bananas. So let's start off with this banana festival that's coming up. One of the marketing points for the banana festival is that it will expand people's notion of what a banana is and can be. Can you expand on that? Well, that's a good question. So when the average person on the street would think about a banana, the image that might come into your head is this curved yellow fruit that you peel and eat sweet. And that's one version of a banana. When I personally think of a banana, I think of the whole world of bananas. And the fruit, even just the concept of eating the fruit, is only one piece of that pie, as I like to think of it. But there's so many other different parts to like what is a banana plant, not only as a food, but also for utility, other farm services, whether it be like windbreak or mulch for other plants. There's also wild species that are the ancestors to edible varieties. But then even zooming back into edible varieties, being here in Hawaii, we might be more familiar with something beyond the kind of standard grocery store banana. We have apple bananas. You might find what's called Thai or Cambodia bananas. You have Sabah, also called Filipino cooking bananas locally. But even that is still a pretty small portion of the banana diversity out there. And especially meaningful in Hawaii is that there are traditional canoe varieties that were brought by Polynesians. And unfortunately, they're pretty rare these days. They're not something you see in grocery stores. Very few farmers grow them. But what I like to try to do is to make people aware of these different varieties, have them be exposed, and ultimately have them be something that doesn't just exist in botanic gardens and textbooks. You know, I want them on people's plates. And, you know, I like to think that for every banana out there, there's a unique highest purpose for it. And I want to find out what it is and kind of be a matchmaker. Yeah. Yeah. That'd be cool if if you could match the exact banana that would make a, the best banana cream pie or would make the best... Um, you know, banana pudding or something something to that effect. Like, yeah. in, my, in my limited mind, that's what I'm thinking. Yeah. For sure, and that's something yeah. I really like doing. I work with a lot of different uh, companies and folks uh, that are doing processing. Um, but then also, you know, back on the farm side, because I'm a farmer myself, I'll have a lot of people come to me and say, well, I want the best banana for windbreak. 
but also fruit production. So then, you know, it might not be what's the best to eat, but what's the best to grow. Yeah. Or they might want something that is the most disease resistant, or they might want something that is the best for weaving. There's some that the pigmentation of the stem fibers are like black or really dark brown and used traditionally for weaving. And so then that's a whole different use, like what's the best for weaving or what's the best for, actually I had some folks the other day trying to do a medicinal bio band-aid out of the sap. So we were exploring what's the best banana to extract the sap from for growing. So yeah. there's so many different uses for bananas and I just really am excited about finding them all. My grandma used to tell me that if I put a banana peel on a mosquito bite, that'll make it stop itching. I don't know if that's true, but... It doesn't hurt. Yeah, it could hurt to try, right? Right. Growing up in Hawaii, I just always assumed that bananas were a common fruit, just like apples and oranges. But what I've come to realize only recently is that they're a fruit more common to the tropics and that many people that live outside the tropics don't care for the flavor or texture. And so now that I better understand that, it also makes me curious as to how the banana got introduced here. And you mentioned the canoe version of the mm -hmm. banana, but what's your understanding of the history of the banana in Hawaii? Well, so bananas are native to Southeast Asia and the far Western Pacific, like Papua New Guinea, but they were brought in you know, the last 2000 years by Polynesian migrants initially, very select set of varieties. And that was pretty much the bananas that existed in Hawaii for many hundreds of years. But starting with waves of migrants coming, you know, in the last 200 years, especially a lot of folks coming from different parts of Asia to work on the plantations, they would bring their varieties with them from home. And so we actually got a lot of interesting varieties to Hawaii in the more recent past. And fortunately or unfortunately, depending on how you look at it, those varieties are the dominant varieties now. I say it's fortunate because we have this really nice eclectic mix of varieties and especially with folks coming from so many different ethnic and cultural backgrounds in Hawaii, their you know, ancestral or culturally significant bananas are here with them. The unfortunate part is that they've largely displaced the Hawaiian varieties. And it's not just a preference thing. The Hawaiian varieties unfortunately happen to be particularly sensitive to a lot of pests and diseases. But there's also an element of that people don't even know to ask for them. They don't know what they taste like. They don't know what they look like. And so, you know, if nobody's eating it or wanting to eat it, then it's a lot less incentive for farmers to grow it. But that's something that we're trying to work on. What are some of the most common varieties of bananas that are sold or grown here in Hawaii? Well, it's the same banana that's the most commonly grown throughout the world, uh, which is the Cavendish which is what the banana that you think of when you think banana no frills, as I call it, just your classic banana. About 50% of the bananas grown in the world are Cavendish. So even here in Hawaii, where we have the opportunity to grow a lot, the majority of bananas consumed in state are imported Cavendish. For local production, apple, also called Brazilian or pom or prata, is a really popular one, of course. I think a lot of our listeners would be familiar with that. And so between those two varieties, that's probably the bulk of what is being eaten. But you still have a lot of other varieties, such as Namwa, which is becoming more and more popular. You'll see it in markets sold as Thai banana or Cambodia banana. You have Sabah, also commonly called Filipino cooking banana. That's a really you know, popular one among the Filipino community. And increasingly, I'm getting demand for anything new and different. So there's definitely an appetite out there for diversity. If you need a banana taster, oh, I I'm love all to. about it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. When it comes to growing bananas in Hawaii, I imagine it depends on what kind of climate you live in. I imagine growing bananas like in arid Waianae versus maybe wet Kaneohe, maybe things are different. When people in Hawaii ask you for your advice on growing bananas, what do you tell them? Well. They're fairly adaptable plants, but there's definitely challenges and opportunities in different climates. You mentioned specifically a dry climate versus a wet climate. They both have their cons as well as their bonuses. One being in a drier area, you have to water a lot. Bananas love water. It's almost impossible to give them too much water so long as you have good soil drainage. But if you're in a really wet area where it rains a lot, you'll have more leaf diseases. So you might have to think about how you manage those or only choose certain varieties. But 
all things being equal, bananas are relatively easy to know what they want because they want as much of everything all the time. As much water as you can give them, as much fertility as you can give them, as much sun as you can give them, and not quite as relevant in Hawaii, but as much warmth as you can give them, which really is mostly about elevation for us. So the higher up you are in areas, say, of Maui or the Big Island, Waimea, Kula, those areas, they'll grow, but it's, they're a lot slower and not as productive. If you could share one really cool thing about the upcoming Banana Festival with our listeners, what would it be? What would you try to sell them on to come and check out the Banana Festival? At the Banana Festival, what we really hope to do is expose people to what it means when we talk about banana diversity, and then by extension, crop diversity in general, and food diversity. There's a lot of challenges in farming. There's a lot of interest in local food production and sustainability, and a lot of it comes back to, you know, what are farmers doing on their farms? And ultimately, as a farmer, I'm asking, well, what are eaters doing in their homes. Um, and it's a relationship. And I think giving a broad exposure to, you know, I, I view bananas as just one avenue to gain entry to the world of agriculture for anybody. But I think it will be a really mind-expanding experience to see not just what you think a banana is, but to see all the different uses, whether it's different varieties. We're going to have about 20 or so varieties for sampling. You can taste them side by side. I'll be bringing about 2,000 pounds of fruit of a bunch of different varieties for sale, a few hundred plants of about 20 to 30 different varieties for people to purchase and take home and plant in their gardens and experience banana diversity that way. And there's also going to be activities, snacks, crafts, stories, all kinds of things. So my specialty in bananas is diversity, and that's really what we try to focus on. Is to, It's not about celebrating the curved yellow standard Cavendish, although, you know, that's I'm an equal banana opportunist. There's a place for Cavendish. But really, we're going to show everybody the world of bananas. It's Saturday, October 21st. Where's it at? At Waimea Valley Arboretum on the North Shore, just outside Haleiwa. Gabe Sachter-Smith, thank you so much for your time. I love bananas. I, I feel like we're brothers. Thank you, Russell. It was a real pleasure being here, and I look forward to seeing all the banana fans up at the festival. Banana Brothers, I like that. That was banana expert Gabe Sachter-Smith talking with HPR's Russell Subiono about bananas. The Banana Festival, again, takes place this Saturday, October 21st in Waimea Valley on Oahu. We'll have links to more information on the conversation page of our website later today. That's it for us today. Up tomorrow, we talk birds. There's a bird festival in Hilo this weekend, and then there's an annual gathering of the Audubon Society later this month. Email us. Give us feedback. Call or talk back line, 808-792-8217. Share a bird story. Want to listen back to something you heard? Find the conversation on Spotify, Apple, or anywhere else you tune in for podcasts. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of The Conversation. 